Welcome back to the Grip Cannabis Connection, uh, where we'll discuss leadership, teamwork, and community in the cannabis industry. I'm Corey Lord, and here again with Logan Hay, and today we're discussing the ins and outs of indoor versus outdoor strain selection. All right, Logan, what key factors do you consider when selecting strains for indoor cultivation? The biggest thing for me uh, would be flowering time or harvest time. Uh, with our indoor facility, we follow a very tight two-week schedule. And so in order to stay on that schedule, we need strains that finish in about eight weeks. We also look at our environment and make sure to choose strains that fit our room dimensions, meaning we're not going to grow a strain that's going to grow 5X in size and grow up into our lights. Um you know, vertical height can be a limiting factor. Next, we look for THC content, terpenes, bag appeal, things like that. Nice. Uh, I would say my number one most important uh, trait for outdoor production is finishing time. Like there's really nothing more important than here in Michigan specifically than getting out of the field early. Uh, anything you can get out early um, limits the amount of time that that flower sits in the sun. It gives you the brightest, like most vibrant color and best bag appeal. Um, biggest letdown for outdoor producers is wanting to finish that classic, like 10 weeker in the field. Um, it bolts nicely. It looks great until you uh, pull it out of the dry room and it shows a lot of discoloration from sun exposure. I'd say that like, the, yeah, the biggest challenge here in Michigan is getting that bag appeal right and uh, not letting it get weathered too long. Um, yeah, and I feel like a, a big differing factor from outdoor strain selection to indoor is just that you know you you want that plant to stretch you want that heavy yield you want that fast flowering time like you mentioned you know the we need this the plants to be sturdy and and hardy to be able to support you know in high wind situations or lots of weather so essentially those are things that you would look for more so than if you were looking for an indoor cultivar. Yeah, you know, you really need to look for strains that are like almost, I don't know, like future-proof, right? Like uh, the anything that's going to withstand the weather. Like you can't, no one knows what's going to happen from week to week. We have a rough forecast of what might happen within a time frame. It's potential, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, but we really don't know. So uh, targeting that early finishing time is uh, kind of our, you know, once again, like working with the end in mind. Um, like we have to get out of the field. We have to try to maintain quality. And that's the, 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 the simplest way that I can think of to do it and selecting traits to, um, that fit the, that time frame. Like we have a few strains that, that finished in like, I shit you not like six weeks. Um, I, I didn't even think that that was, you know, real, like we're seeing like real finishing time, like it, you know, around like nine fifteen, which is I, unheard of, like coming from the West coast, um, yeah. like everything didn't start flowering until like the 15th of August here. We're really looking like, um, like the end of July is when things really start to flip. I'm sure that's going to vary a little bit season to season, but the last few seasons that we've had here, that's, it's been early every year. So, mm -hmm. which is great because the season ends so abruptly here. Um, but uh, what do you think uh, like the role of genetics plays in strain selection for uh, indoor and outdoor cultivation? Like how do you ensure access to high quality uh, genetics? I would say the main thing there is to work with what your desired end goal is. With that in mind, you'll ensure that high quality standard is being held and, and you know being over selective and really striving for what you need to fit your scope of work, whether that's indoor or outdoor. 
Um, but generally the same rules apply based off what your needs are. There's like a common theme here. Like it seems to be like very goal centric. Like you really need to know what you're looking for in order to make any decisions that are going to, you know, really stick around for the long term. Like, uh, you know, like selective breeding for traits that fit your goals is the number one reason why people breed, um, that ego, uh, but like breeding for indoor production, um, we're looking for, uh, the highest quality flower, um, undeniable bag appeal and that eight to 10 week finishing time. I find that most 10 week strains you can finish pretty well in eight weeks. Obviously that's not ideal, but if it's, you know, we have a very tight schedule, we try to flip these rooms as quickly as possible to get as many cycles in. Um, but if we find something that we really, really love and it fits, uh, the facility that we're in, then I think that we could potentially find room to uh, push to a 10 week schedule if it's, uh, if, it, if it fits our program. Um, looking for things with a low leaf to calyx ratio. Like, I think you're going to hear me say that again and again. Like, that's really the number one, well, like the number two thing aside from finishing time that um, we're looking for. Um, it's, it's, it's whatever's going to be in product, right? Like, we, we need right. to minimize how much uh, foliage that we have on our end product, no matter what. So, we're trimming like a low leaf to calyx ratio is just flying out. Like, you're not losing anything. Right. And um, having a, having a, a high, flower to trim ratio essentially helps you know market your product easier sell your product easier and all that and obviously gain a higher dollar yeah and like in, indoor specifically too um like we have flexibility to plant at higher densities lower densities uh, based on the way the plant grows uh, we can use the flexibility of the grow space to accommodate just about any type of uh, different plant growth and as long as the flowers we're pushing for, we can continue to try to, you know, mine those traits. Um, outside, like for me, I am really trying to close the gap on finishing time. I think that I'm going to beat that dead horse over and over again uh, to minimize sun exposure, but also weather. Like October 15th here in Michigan is literally one, you know, or every day after October 15th here in Michigan is literally one day closer to frost and massive snowstorms, as we found out last year. Uh, it's not uncommon to get snow here in southwest Michigan in October. Inches and inches of snow. Yeah, that was brutal last year. Um, <laughs> we were we were fully out of the field by October 31st, and we had multiple snowstorms, multiple frosts, and still managed to get our product out. So um, you just never know. You got to be prepared, which is why selecting genetics for those reasons is is our main reason in our selection you care to tell us any more about uh, any snow experiences that you had last year do i care to tell about it uh it was a pain in the ass <laughs> it's definitely slowed uh harvest down quite a bit are rubber gloves, gloves that warm? warm um rubber gloves are not that warm <laughs> Uh, the only thing that was keeping us warm was having dry clothes to oh. be able to change out of and uh yeah, so I don't, I don't uh, suggest it, but Dude, I respect that so much. But as soon as I pulled up and saw what it looked like, I was like, "Oh no, we've got to do something different. This looks, this looks impossible." It wasn't impossible. It was impossible. Yeah, we're lucky nobody lost a finger. Dude, yeah, yeah, because yeah, I mean, you're not, your hands aren't working. You can't feel them, and you're oh cutting with sharp scissors. So yeah, let's 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 try to get out of the field before that this year. Um. Also, you know, access to embedded genetics is clearly becoming easier and easier um, with the internet at maturity. Uh, having a network of people you can trust to and lean on is really the only way to maintain longevity in this space. Uh, so I try to get 
as many uh, or as much variety uh, in genetics from our friends as, as well as you do too. So, you know, reaching out to people and trying to bridge that gap as, as frequently as possible and then trying to offer them uh, new stuff that maybe they haven't seen too uh, that's coming from uh, uniquely uh, the Midwest or the East Coast is always nice. Uh, speaking of, like, what are some of uh, the most popular strains for uh, indoor cultivation? Lately, um, according to some of our younger employees, uh, strains like Cap Junkie, RS11, which is Rainbow Sherbet, Sour Peaches, anything Gelato Crossed, White Truffle, Super Boof is a, a big one, Zangria, um, anything crossed with Oreos. These are all things that are pretty hot in the market right now that you're seeing on these limited drops or clone only releases and, and things like that. Yeah, there's always new shit being developed uh, and then super hyped in the, in the industry. Uh, thanks, Instagram. Like, uh, you know, we got the Mac, Runts, Cake Mints, GMO, super, super popular. Um, and Purple Punch, obviously, is a, a classic. Yeah, and, and I mean, what I see still is you know breeders using the old school strains like the blue dreams and the girl scout cookies and the sour diesels if they're still available and taking those to a whole new level with some of these other new strains and back crossing to keep that lineage alive yeah like i said like uh it's it's important to build off that foundation like i feel like you know somebody put a lot of time and attention and effort into that and uh i think it's uh it's like a it's a sign of respect to build off of that like you really saw something in their work that you really liked and admired and for you to use that strain in, in, in your project i don't believe it's necessarily stealing or like misappropriating that ip um if it is ip I really believe the being open source and, and continuing to push those varieties out that, you know, we're not seeing, uh, we haven't seen rather all the phenos that are out there. Like, you know, if you keep mining like uh, old GSC uh, seed drops, like you'll probably continue to pull new fun stuff out of there. For sure. What are some of the most popular strains, Logan, for outdoor cultivation? Like, and how do you go about trying to manage some of the risks associated with that? For us, last year, our, our biggest producer was our white runs outside. Um, our Bermuda like, Triangle. Like, is, literally, like, biggest. Yeah, like, colas the size of your arm. Um, it was it was a fine sight to see. Um, they turn a nice purple color, too, so a lot of people liked that. Super fall vibes. Um, Pure Michigan. Uh, I know it's cliche, but we rock the crap out of Pure Michigan. Um it smokes good, smells good, tastes good, got good bag appeal, gets harvested early. Um, not a whole lot to complain about it. Um, however, it doesn't quite stretch the way we would like it to, but it's hard not to have it out in the market of Michigan um, just based off its name alone. Um, we're currently doing a very large pheno hunt. We've, we talked about it before in the previous podcast about our um big seed drop that we did um we are looking for characteristics that are designed for what we need them uh to do and hopefully this will allow us to broaden our horizon with our market and, and other clientele um a lot of challenges 
that other facilities may face is having the proper setup to do such a thing as a pheno hunt. We're fortunate to have an indoor facility and two outdoor farms, which one of which has four greenhouses on it that we're able to pull light deprivation in. So we'll, we'll have a good idea of what these new strains are going to look like um, before going in blind and just planting out in the field. Um, so fortunate for us, we have the facilities to do such a thing. It gives us an opportunity to try out the strains in multiple different facilities, like I said, um, which in turn can give us the ability to make the best decision whether or not to keep them or not. Yeah, like uh, like you were saying, like we're, we're, we have the flexibility of having two um, 30 by 100 depth greenhouses that we're you know getting out right now. Um, with, uh, what is it, 175 different phenos? Yeah, roughly. Yeah, uh, give or take a few of the things that we've recently called based off just like less vigorous veg growth. Uh, that's one thing that we, we try to stray away from as much as possible is if we don't like the way it's uh, building in veg, then we most likely won't be able to keep it no matter what. So even if it is really, really nice and we find a lot of other things to like about it, it most likely uh, the juice isn't worth the squeeze of trying to keep it in production. Um, so we have to always weigh that being a cannabis company, like if, you know, growing at home or, or on a smaller scale, if you, if you find something you really like, you can keep just hammering away at that and then learning how to build that foundation with those plants and the way they grow, um, you know, it, it, the best you can. So I think there's merit to it. It just depends on, uh, what you're willing to, to kind of put up with to get that result. Definitely. Uh, what, uh, what, what does a company, or excuse me, how does a company balance the costs and benefits of, of indoor versus outdoor cultivation when selecting strains? For me, you know, costs and benefit are related to your overhead, your yield, and what the market supply and demand are. When selecting for indoor strains, you want to keep up in the market as far as hype strains go. If you're falling behind in that, you're going to have a harder time selling your product because you're not going to make that top shelf that people are looking for. Um, it'll make sales way easier having a more desired product. Indoor production is expensive, so the facility needs to be able to run efficiently and effectively. Using more automation can help reduce labor costs, but it also can become a headache in itself. Costs and benefits of outdoor come down to your strain selection again and whether or not you can beat the weather and have a successful harvest um, in such that your product retains color, smell, bag appeal, low mold, things like that. Outdoor cultivation can be way less expensive as well, um, aside from a startup, but, you know, strain selection is critical to that success. Yeah, I mean, like uh, your, your two most um, uh, capital demanding things are going to be the property itself and then a place to process. Um, so, like, once again, if you don't have um, a plan on, on how you're going to execute to execute the finish, then it's probably best to tiptoe in, take it slow, be reasonable about what your expectations are and go from there. Like the... The landscape of the industry is changing. Like I, I really find that uh, path to profitability within indoor cultivation is, is challenging. Like especially with the market where it is now, um, it, and it really I feel like it's pushing companies toward more sustainable ways of cultivation, uh, i.e., greenhouse uh, or uh, outdoor production. Um, that being said, like there's always going to be a market for high quality indoor flower. It's not going away. It's just going to be expensive. 
Uh, there are companies right now that are working to get that uh, unit price down as much as possible. But they're, you know, the overhead with automation, uh, having a robust uh, employee pool, um, and then finding talent in general, is, is, it just all demands capital. Like if it's your only means of generating revenue, you can really be at risk, like when the market shifts and, and your overhead doesn't. Like the bills always keep coming, the money doesn't. Like yeah. that's, that's one thing I tell people uh, more often than not is like more canopy does not guarantee you more, more, more money. It's just more bills. Like it's just more overhead. Uh, you have to really know how to manage that properly in order to actually get the, the benefit of it. Um, I hate seeing anyone struggle. Um, it's perfectly avoidable. So Logan, how do you ensure that your indoor cultivation facility is optimized for the strains you pick? Uh, what are some of the key considerations uh, when you're like trying to design a facility or work a retrofit, like work a, a facility that's already built? For me, essentially, you choose your strains based off of your facility and what that looks like. Um, for our indoor facility, uh, we have a couple of rooms that are multi-tiered. So therefore, we need to grow strains that don't stretch as much. Um, and in order to get as many harvests in, in a year as you can, you have to follow that strict schedule and maximize your opportunity. Um, some other things to consider when designing a facility or working in a new facility is, uh, what their HVAC systems like, what their security's like, um, what the water quality's like, what the airflow is like. Um, you know, all, all things need to be considered where, you know, if you're outdoor, those things aren't necessarily a, a part of the picture so much because you can't control them as much. But at least as far as indoor goes, these are things that would be highly on my mind when going into a new facility. Things like high ceilings can be utilized to the fullest now with uh, the square footage of your canopy. And now these, uh, you know, new light fixtures like LEDs that don't produce as much heat. So you can put more lights in a room and and really maximize the full potential of a, of a room. Not challenging your HVAC system. Uh, yeah, dude. No, the funny thing about this is like the more I work with uh, cannabis outside, the, the more I work to mimic those conditions inside. Like a constant supply of fresh air, like moving leaves gently around, high relative humidity, warmer veg cycles, working to cool down the environment before harvest uh, gives me the most control over steering my crop to the finish. So um, I really thought that indoor cultivation uh, in the beginning was try to keep the, the, the room cool, like 75 degrees, uh, try to keep the uh, light as, as close as humanly possible to your plants. Um, uh, and then also uh, uh, trying to dry the rooms out to like sub 40% relative humidity and just stressing the shit out of everything. Um, Learning more about BPD really helped me understand what the plant was going through at any given time throughout the, the cycle too. So, uh, and, and literally that's what outside's built for it's sustaining plants. So crazy. I know. I know. Um, how do cannabis companies manage environmental factors that can impact outdoor cultivation? Like, so, um, w what do you do to try to mitigate things such as lighting temperature and humidity outside loading? Well, with our, Biggest environmental factors um, for the farm has to do with our water runoff and our drainage. We can't control the light, but we can supplement light. Um, we can't control the humidity outside, but we, you know, we've seen um, some farms have like huge uh, fans or turbines 
uh, to move the air around. Like windmills? Windmills. We don't have that problem in Southwest Michigan. We get the lake effect. So we have plenty of wind coming through. So we don't necessarily see that like sink of buildup of, of humidity or, or stagnant air. It's crazy. Um, and then also like where we're at in, uh, the Vandalia area, like, uh, it's protected from frost. Like, so we have like a little bit of leeway there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Southwest Michigan is a great climate, but also a very demanding climate. Our company specifically works directly with, uh, people like DNR to plant crops, around the property to help with drainage and runoff. And and so, um, you know, for me, it's a tough situation. Uh, I, I went to college to be a sustainable agriculture farmer and, um, with cannabis, it's a very demanding crop needing high fertilizers, high amounts of water. And, um, a lot of people think that the smell can be offensive and, which is a, a nice compliment to us when we get complaints <laughs> like that. Um, it means we're doing a good job. Um, we also use a lot of plastic, a lot of which we try to reuse at any chance possible. Um, we use a ton of trellis that we reuse. We reuse our soil. We, we reuse our pots. We do what we can. Um, essentially trying to mitigate as much impact on the environment as we can. Um, and, that, you know, those are things that we can do. Um at the outdoor, the other farm that we have, the greenhouses, you know, we can put supplemental light in there. We can control the temp, we can control the humidity and, and that sort of thing um, with controllers and fans and, you know, very simple, a very simple concept. Yeah, no, I love greenhouse production for that very reason. Um, you know, as far as lighting goes outside, like the sun is, is hands down the best catalyst for growth, like literally nothing in my experience produces a higher or yeah, a higher activity plant than the sun. Um, there is of course uh, the trade off in quality later in the flower cycle, but uh, no light can match the uh, sun and quality of light. Uh, in my opinion, um, just in case out there, somebody has done it and I'm not aware of it. Uh, the, uh, the hard part is uh, there's little to nothing that we can do to impact the environment for full sun crops, like other than hope for the best. And uh, you know, I throw up hope with the best of them, but uh, doing everything you can early in the plant's life cycle to ensure uh, health and vigor is, is the best way, if not the only way to curb environmental stress. Uh, you know, don't over prune your plants. Just, just don't like, just, uh, if you want to, uh, some extra shock absorption, um, leave a little extra foliage on your plants. Do not remove more than 20 to 30% of a plant any given time. Typically tell people 20% because I find most people like to ride the line a little too close uh, for comfort on that. Um, and they'll, they'll ride up to that 30% mark. Anyway, I know this is something we kind of come into contact with quite a bit, um, is uh, a lot of people want to overprint their plants, uh, do that, that three light and, and smash those yields. But, uh, if you do anything, uh, too fast, uh, with the plant, it is alive and it will respond, um, as if it is alive. So contrary to popular belief, plants really do need to lose. Logan, what advice would you give other growers that are trying to decide between, uh, indoor and outdoor cultivation and, uh, selecting the right strains for their business? Uh, a little bit of advice I would have for people deciding between indoor and outdoor is to consider once again what what their goals are, what what where are their priorities. With indoor, it's a year-round gig. You can grow all year round. With outdoor, 
you're a lot more limited. If you don't have greenhouses, then you're really, really limited to that one big crop. Um, with greenhouses, you can extend your seasons quite a bit. And um, in full sun situation on an open farm, you get one shot and that's it. <laughs> so that is the biggest consideration. If, if, you wanna, if you want a steady job or you wanna provide steady work, steady harvest, always being able to hit the market with new material, then indoor is a good route for you to take. Um, however, if you like being outside, you like working your butt off, outdoor might be more for you. Yeah, no, I really found, uh, I was way happier working outside. Like uh, for whatever reason, uh, well, I mean, for various handful of reasons, uh, being trapped inside with no windows definitely has its impact on your mood. Uh, it can definitely affect your quality of work and maybe uh, your sanity a little bit too. Uh, so it's always nice to try to take some breaks and get outside as much as possible. Uh, you know, if you're looking to break into the industry, like I highly recommend starting outdoor or starting outdoor cultivation, like the low end and the simplicity of schedule. Like a strategic cornerstone as you learn to scale. Uh, take the profits from a couple, couple of seasons, roll them into a modest indoor grow, and master the art of perpetual harvest. Like take the lessons that you've learned from the seasons you have growing outside, apply them to indoor cultivation to steer profitability. Consistency is the number one asset in all of this. Without it, it won't matter how much product you have. If it isn't consistent, you can't build a brand. Like, uh, and I don't mean like the same jam four strains consistent. Like, I mean quality. Like, even if you don't have, or even if you don't immediately produce, uh, you know, cover high times quality shit. Like, if you put your heart into it and learn to be consistent, the level of quality will increase year over year. <clears throat> and that's ultimately why people go to your product once they trust you. Like, you have to, you have to build consistency. Brands have to be consistent. Like. The people that you're uh, you're trying to uh, to market to have to trust you, and if they don't, they'll stop buying your product. Um, you know, I, I think that's going to wrap us up for today. That was that was another fun one. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in to Grip Cannabis Connection. I hope everyone enjoyed learning about uh, outdoor or indoor versus outdoor cultivation, kind of how we uh, select genetics based on each one of these, uh, and uh, a little bit about our experience with uh, both sides of uh, defense on that. Uh, if you found this podcast helpful and informative, please like and subscribe to our channel so you never miss an episode. And if you want to stay up to date on the latest developments in cannabis cultivation, be sure to follow us on our socials. Thanks for listening. As always, keep cultivating success. Thanks, y'all.